This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we are interviewing Dr. Jesse James, the Chief Medical Officer for Chess Health Solutions. As a leader in the value movement, Dr. James oversees quality and clinical services for a population health management company that supports more than 3,000 providers and 150,000 patients. Yeah, the leadership background of Dr. James in value-based care and health information technology is truly extraordinary. He previously served in such roles as the Chief Medical Information Officer for Evelyn Health, the Associate Medical Director at Innovalon, and, and was deeply involved in the EHR Meaningful Use Program. Dr. Jesse James is not your typical outlaw. Instead of disruption with a gun, he's leading the way in healthcare innovation through spirited collaboration and big vision. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Jesse as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Jesse, welcome to Race to Value. We're so happy to have you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. Well, I thought a great way to start our conversation today, Jesse, would be to start with your personal journey as a value-based care leader. Your career has been filled with entrepreneurial ventures. I mean, you've built teams, products, and solutions from scratch. As a physician executive, you have an extensive background in health information technology, having worked with the Department of Health and Human Services in the Office of the National Coordinator on Health IT. You've been instrumental in the development of the EHR Meaningful Use Program and the development of clinical quality measures. Before joining CHESS, you were the Chief Medical Information Officer at Evelyn, where you worked as the clinical architect for enterprise information systems and data use. You've worked so collaboratively across your MSO, the, the industry. You've done great work. And now as the CMO of CHESS Health Solutions, a role which you started about a year and a half ago, you have responsibility for leading strategy in a rapidly growing physician-led healthcare services company. I mean, you're managing 150,000 patients with nine value partners across Medicare, MA, commercial contracts. So I wanted to ask you if you could share with our listeners a bit about your career journey. How have your personal values instilled in you by family and mentors played a part in your career success? And as for the embodiment of values within your company, how is Chess making a deeper investment? 
in its culture to better empower providers to win this race to value? Thank you. Thank you for that question. When I, when I think of my career journey, what comes to mind is I started as an internist and now I'm here. Internal general medicine has been the foundation of my work. It stays the foundation of my work. It guides me along my way, but it's only the beginning. When I decided to go to medical school, I was a biology major at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. It sits on the tallest of Tallahassee's seven tall hills. But I, I won't forget the day I had pretty much decided I was going to do cardiovascular physiology, and I was a basic science guy. I wasn't all that crazy about med school and the pre-med folks because uh, I had already charted my path. But I, I was walking across the set, which is sort of the quadrangle on FAM's campus, and there were some there were some folks who were taking up donations for a local humane society that was raising money so that some of the dogs and cats could get surgery. And it, it was just a defining moment for me because it made me think about access and healthcare and health insurance and who, who has access and who doesn't and what folks have to do to get it. And that we probably, that was pre-ACA, we probably needed more people taking up money so that people inside of our community could get healthcare themselves. And that concerned me. And that was the moment when I heard a different calling in my life and I had a slower epiphany than only in that moment. But that's when I started to realign. I was a junior that year, undergrad. I took the MCAT and I started applying for medical school. But with, with a different background, I didn't spend as much time volunteering in hospitals. I didn't spend all of my undergrad pointing to what a doctor should look like. In that moment, I knew that my work in medicine would begin at the bedside and then it would be working at the system level. And I've been fortunate that that has been the rough trajectory of my career. It doesn't seem that long to me. <laughs> I've had a, an interesting voyage to get this far. So I finished at FAM. I did an MD MBA at Yale. The MD MBA program there has been focused on healthcare leadership nearly from the start. It's one of the early ones. And that's where I started to align towards work. I, I could see myself moving between private sector and public sector, taking what I learned from both and applying that to the other. I did residency at Chapel Hill at UNC. I learned a lot. I did internal medicine and preventive medicine, spent some time in DC consulting on what became the American Affordable Care Act, spent most of my time in Chapel Hill seeing patients, working inpatient and outpatient, and just growing my love and knowledge for clinical care. As I completed my work, my clinical work, uh, my timing was a bit fortuitous. And the year before my last year of my residency, the ACA passed. I was working inside of the hospital as a senior resident. I was also consulting to hospitals within North Carolina on hospital-acquired conditions and PQRS. There was so much happening around how we pay for care and how we distribute care and then how we move information. It was easy for me to hear my calling to both continue clinical work as I could but also to think about where the next place should be uh, that I continue my work. So I, I ended up working at Anovalon, which was MedAssurant at the time under Carrie Senate in the very small world of healthcare quality. I wrote my medical school thesis on quality measures for cath lab data. It's, it's probably the most boring read in the history of medical school theses, and that's saying a lot. 
But Carrie Sennett, the chief medical officer at MedAssurant at that time is also, we all know, the godfather of quality measurement inside of the HEDIS program, which is a national program that measures clinical quality and health plan quality. So working under Carrie Sennett, he taught me a lot about moving from being clinically trained to being a leader and executive. And as a mentor, he's, he's been there throughout my career when I've had questions to sort of guide me along the way. What has stuck with me the most that I learned from Carrie about being a physician executive, I was hardly uh, an executive at that time, but on the first day, he told me something that I've told, I think everyone um, that I've onboarded in any job I've ever had since. Carrie told me, basically, I'm going to get some things wrong. Like that was his, his welcome to the team speech. It's like, Jesse, I'm going to get some things wrong. I, I haven't gotten this all figured out. Of course, to me at the time, this is Carrie Sennett. He's got everything figured out. What are you talking about? But he gave me the permission to correct him in a way that seemed atypical for someone in a position of authority to do, even in academic medicine, when times can have a flatter hierarchy than some other places in the clinical sphere. But really, the, the message I learned from Carrie was a reminder to be humble. That's what I heard in that moment. That's what I've tried to carry throughout my career and to repeat to the teams that I've been fortunate enough to lead to say, we're fortunate to have the work that we have to do. We're fortunate to have the opportunity to care for the people we do. I've got 180,000 patients. I remind my parents of that when they're like, what is it you do again? I've got a pretty large patient panel going on here. And I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to guide and lead the folks that I do. If we start with humility, I think we tend to be much better off in our careers. I, I think that's part of what has made chess so good at what we do. We focus on our relationships. We go deep in our relationships. But one of our important values is humility. Another is innovation. And another is expertise. And that's what we've been bringing to bear. That's what we continue to bring to bear. As we look at the healthcare, the value business landscape changing, we've had to look internally to figure out how to do things in a better way, how to do things in a different way, how to bring to our value partners services and technology that enables them to work better in a pop health space. Jesse, wow, what a great way to start the conversation and just frame our listeners thinking about what uh, true leadership looks like. And as I hear you talk about the great work you're doing at Chess to advance value-based care, I can't help think about the great basketball coach, John Wooden. He believed that being a great coach has nothing to do with how many championships you win or, or a win-loss record. It has to do with how well you coach and how well you overcame losses. And did you help those that you coached get better and make the best of their abilities? Or did you help your players learn the core values of hard work and teamwork that serve them well in life and in dealing with others? And wouldn't happen to be a great coach by any conventional yardstick, but his true greatness came from his ability to help players fulfill their potential. And I'm reminded of a quote that he said once about how failure is not fatal, but failure to change might be. And you've been talking about this allowance to do something wrong that uh, that Carrie said about, you know, I'm not going to be perfect. I can I might do something wrong. And given that there is a, you know, a high rate of failure that's commonplace in value-based transformation, especially in early adoption phases, how do you approach change management and foster this culture that reflects a willingness and readiness to flex with changing circumstances with a recognition that failure is not fatal? How can our listeners out there who are tirelessly working to advance the aims 
of value-based care better embrace failure so they can quickly identify roadblocks, overcome them, and learn from these experiences to better embolden them in their transformational work. Thanks for that question, John. Stay's one of my favorite coaches. Failure is important. You have to be willing to call it out and you have to be willing to fail forward. If you haven't realized that you failed, then you've done yourself a disservice. You can't learn from it if you're misclassifying a failure as a success. It just so happens that as an innovative company, Chess has had to take our lumps. We've got the scar tissue to show for our failures, but it's our scar tissue that makes us stronger. But Chess, Chess actually, our, our story on value goes back more than a decade. It was roughly a decade ago that a physician-led, physician-owned practice, Cornerstone Health, began to reorganize themselves around value principles of measuring quality, of having a single database for those metrics, analyzing those metrics at the patient level and at the physician level, doing what at the time had become popularly described as having a medical home and presenting that uh, to payers in the area. Cornerstone was actually ahead of the curve for much of the work that's happened around population health and value. And they had, frankly, because they were so far ahead, before the payment environment, was in place to support them. Cornerstone, frankly, had financial difficulty. They had a hard time figuring out how to get paid for doing what's seen as the right thing now at that time, and how to balance the dollars that were traditionally fee-for-service to the dollars they were hoping to gain and fee-for-value. Chess is here because of the success that Cornerstone could eventually have, but it's a risk you take when you are on the, the sharp edge of the cutting edge, when you're on the leading part of that edge, Sometimes you're going to be ahead of where the rest of the market is. Uh, Cornerstone has been willing to do that. Other actors in the space have been willing to do that. Chess stays willing to experiment in how we work and experiment with what works. But that pays dividends. When you learn early, there, there are a couple of ways to learn. You can learn from watching someone else. You can learn from your own experience. Chess has been able to learn early from our own experience. We're now at a point where we can write better contracts and operate inside of value contracts that we would not have been able to, but that we took the time and the effort to find what works and what doesn't work, to find timeline and a prescription to move from pay for performance to gain share, to full downside risk, and to guide our value partners along that journey. We had to accept and expect failures along the way. You've got to be willing to identify them, point them out, and then change based on them. Now, to do that, you're going to need good data. If your information is of poor quality, you're going to have a hard time diagnosing anything, and whether that's in the clinical realm or the pop health one. But we've had to restructure our data over time. We had to move from having a homegrown system to partnering with a national vendor that allows us to have an even better data infrastructure and sets us up better for the future of population health and reporting. You have to remove the stigma around failure. We like to find euphemisms for the word. Um, you can call them opportunities to learn or to grow, but sometimes things fail and that's okay. One of my favorite physicians, Sir William Osler. So William Osler in internal medicine, he's like the, the father of Western internal medicine, especially in the States. You can't start a talk in a medical school without starting with a quote from Sir William Osler. Like people will get up and walk away. That's a dramatic oversimplification, but not entirely untrue. Now, besides being a brilliant physician, 
He was uh, the son of Anglican missionaries. He was known for an exacting uh, clinically scientific approach to his practice. He was also known for calling out his mistakes. He described the ideal physician as being equally willing to call out his or her successes as his or her failures. He said that you should be like Ulysses or Odysseus and finding and experimenting and taking a voyage on what works and what doesn't work, not only for yourself, but also for your colleagues. That's how we learn. That's how you create a learning health system. If you are learning, you are willing to admit your errors, and then you're willing to share them. But you have to have a stigma removed. The Institute of Medicine report to Errors Human, which was out in the early 2000s, it shifted a lot the culture and thinking and has pushed a new type of culture and thinking around safety inside of the practice of medicine. You need a similar approach. We need a similar approach in value-based care and population health, where we're willing to say what has worked and what hasn't worked, and then willing to pivot from it, and even willing to share with our colleagues. Well, Jesse, as I think about this change that's underway in the industry, we're failing forward. We're hopeful for a better tomorrow. And there's clearly a tipping point right now in the value economy. And there's groups like yours that are out there building a base of knowledge and infrastructure capability to manage delegated premiums from major payers. And as I understand, Chess is moving the value in a major way by getting as close to the premium dollar as possible with MA and commercial insurers, and you're building out delegated capabilities, hiring actuaries, paying claims, you're figuring out how to capitate providers in these new payment models with significant downside risk exposure. For your traditional Medicare beneficiaries, you're also approaching risk in the same way, and you have one of the 41 next-gen ACOs in the country, and it looks like CMS is responding to the maturity of the value-based care landscape by expanding APM offerings beyond the MSSP ACO and really looking at total cost of care accountability with downside risk. And so as we look at what CMMI is doing with the launch of direct contracting and, and everything, I wanted to see if you could provide our listeners with your perspective on new payment mechanisms such as direct contracting and global capitation. Will this newfound commitment and willingness for pay for performance by both CMS and commercial insurers be key drivers of change in the value landscape over the next few years? How do you see chess as evolving as payment models continue to shift to increase risk? Well, chess is excited. We stay excited about experimentation from both commercial payers and public payers. We want to be as close to those premium dollars as possible, and we want to make that case to our value partners to keep them pushing, our clients to keep them pushing for value within their organizations. And inside of any provider organization, there is an inherent tension uh, since so few organizations are purely solely value-based. They're your dollars from fee-for-service, and they tend to be in, at tension with your dollars from your value-based contracts. We want to push the value-based dollars because we think that is the trend that is going to be driving care into the future. We also see it as part of justice within healthcare, that since providers are responsible for savings, provider systems should be able to reap the rewards from their good work. I think less of direct contracting and global cap as less of a newfound commitment from CMS and more of a CMS is this 
very large. It's, the Fed is the largest purchaser of healthcare in the world. Very large, often very slow moving agency that is extremely influential and to some extent sets the tune for a lot of care and payment across the country. But they've been hinting for this for the last at least couple decades. And I think it's going to create in the commercial payers a greater opportunity for them to experiment with global cap and an opportunity for what would be especially exciting for us is an opportunity for the outliers of high performance who are lowering cost and improving quality to open contracts where it becomes easier for them to really reap the rewards over multiple years. Sometimes once you get deep into the contracts, it becomes almost harder to continue to share and win back your savings because of your high performance going forward. There are elements in direct contracting that we find very attractive. There are elements that are also challenging to it. I'm sure you've seen from the publicly available information that there, there are certain parts of the program that is probably more attractive on the provider side. Some are more attractive to MA plans that are already in place. We are somewhat limited to the extent to which we can comment on it since we, of course, contract with CMS. So I don't want to step on any of those landmines, but I will say that Chess stays excited on where CMS is going with this and where they will go next. And as we find it to be favorable to our value partners from a strategic, clinical, and financial perspective, we will aggressively pursue the innovation in the payment space. Dr. James, we've talked a lot about leadership and change management and the importance of an innovative culture to advance the aims of value-based care and, and building on the innovation around payment models. As a leader, I love how you're ensuring that this culture of innovation can permeate through all levels of your organization. And Steve Jobs once said that innovation has nothing to do with how many R&D dollars you have. It's not about money. It's about the people you have, how you're led and how much you get it. With that in mind, I'd like to expound upon the chess cultural philosophy and better understand how you are creating innovation cells to effectively disseminate learnings to partner organizations. Your organization has an extensive innovation roadmap with funding commitments to accelerate scale and impact through the chess innovation lab. As I understand, chess is either implemented or is building out new capabilities in telehealth, home visit programs, hospital at home, SDOH interventions, clinical decision support tools, on-site employee clinics, specialist integration, and the list goes on. With respect to your innovation roadmap, can you explain how Chess is not only acting as a guide and mentor to provider systems on their value journey, but also serving as a laboratory for new ideas, enhancement, products, and technology? And how are you mutually developing products with partner institutions and implementing them at Chess? And finally, what leadership principles would you share with our listeners that are looking to emulate your culture of innovation? I'll start with the principles and sort of work my way down to the details. But what immediately comes to mind is democratize your process, democratize innovation. It reminds me of something Farzad Mostashari, the former national coordinator for health IT used to say, liberate the data. You have to let the people that know the most about what they're doing, make good decisions about where they should go. Steve Jobs also said, to paraphrase, it's not the rank and file within a company that leads it in the wrong direction. It's not their ideas that end up gumming up the system. It's the leadership. It's the execs who have the authority to make decisions who often won't listen to the people that know the most 
about what's going on. So one of the key principles of innovation within chess is to encourage and allow the folks who are doing the work every day, who are closer to the factory floor, so to speak, closest to the bedside to guide us in where our innovation should go. Now to do this, we have to have something more than a box in a room with a slit in the top with a sticker that says ideas on it. So we had to build some process, but not have this process itself stifle the progress. So we build an innovation lab and an innovation review committee and said to the lab, you have freedom to seek out and test, quickly test, uh, or at least create an idea resume or an abstract around ideas that as they come in throughout the org and have a multidisciplinary team devote it to that. And then on the other side, we have structure around our review committee that's responsible for after the lab has uh, thrown an idea around, come up with something. Recently, we're working on transportation in rural areas to see, we, we know when we've looked at our data from social determinants of health, and we look at our population, which spans a lot of the Western part of the state of North Carolina, and also the triad, we know that transportation issues are one of the greatest barriers to receiving care for our high utilization patients. So we've got, we've got to make a difference in that population. We have to find a way to get them to clinics in the setting of a pandemic and a deep recession. It's been an odd year to, to practice. It's been a tough year to work inside of the, the social realities of this situation. So what the lab has been thinking about is who can we partner with? How can we partner with rideshare organizations? How we, can we partner with technology vendors, both in the health space and in more of the consumer space to get folks into offices, into clinics as they need them and as is appropriate. Also in the setting of the pandemic, we've had to accept that we have to meet people where they are. And we've put time and thought and partnered with our colleagues at Wake on how do we deploy hospital to home? Who are the patients that are most appropriate for this? Where can we save time in the hospital and have people at home instead and both save costs to them and put them in often what's a more safe environment. If you can save that last day or two uh, where you're, instead of sitting in a hospital bed with a high risk of infection, you can be sitting at home and have a paramedic or a nurse come to visit you to make sure you get your final days of an infusion, that, that's more beneficial to a patient and more beneficial to the system overall. How we split up our innovation is primarily we think about those value services that are technology-based and those value services that are more clinical services. We had to do this because we realized that our value partners are becoming, frankly, they're better trained, more mature, and they need less of guidance on the content of their contracts. Some of them are taking on more of their care management and they're thinking more about utilization. They're becoming more active in closing their clinical care gaps. They are taking command of data and analytics uh, with our guidance. So as they mature, we have to offer them something different. Our most mature value partner that has had multiple years in the space looks a whole lot different than someone who perhaps had started some pay for performance and had failure along the way and is now looking for chess to help. What we see as being important, especially to the more mature partners, is for chess to act like a purveyor of services and tech and clinical services to wrap around their value work to success inside of our contracts. I'd love to ask you more, Jesse, about your clients and partners there at Chess. I mean, in looking at 
you know, Chess's value partnerships. You have a strong regional presence in North Carolina with 100,000 lives under management. You've recently expanded into the Florida market with a clinically integrated network of 83 practices. And I'd like to better understand the North Carolina market as it's been a hotbed for value-based care innovation over the last few years. The co-founder of the ACLC and former CMS administrator, Dr. Mark McClellan, he's gone on record to say that no state was moving as fast and as far as North Carolina and value-based care. And he even wrote an article in Health Affairs titled North Carolina, the New Frontier for Healthcare Transformation, in which he talked about the convergence of public and private health sector partnership and leadership and really creating unprecedented and accelerated shift towards reforming how healthcare is paid for in the state. And over the next five years, as I understand, the state's poised to make an estimated 70% or more of healthcare payments through APMs. No other state is on track to reform payments that fast and improving population health and care delivery. And then just looking at the the state, I know last October, Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist Health, and Wake Forest School of Medicine completed their merger. And that combined entity will have 70,000 employees, 42 hospitals, 1,500 care locations, and have 11 billion in operating revenue. And so, you know, Jesse, I wanted to see if you could maybe describe for our listeners the value-based care landscape in North Carolina, and how is this merger with Atrium and Wake going to impact your partnership in the state? It's very exciting. To your point, the state of North Carolina has a history of being an innovator when it comes to healthcare and services. We have deep academic resources in the state. We have a commitment to health at large, not only healthcare, but health itself. And I've worked with a number of these institutions. I think we advance one another as we advance ourselves and share. The relationship between Wake and Atrium and Chess is one that we are very excited about. Wake Forest Baptist is our largest customer inside of our value contracts. Uh, We spend our time working intimately with them on cost and quality improvement. We also spend time collaborating on what's worked inside of both our innovation sales and inside of their own. The scale of what Atrium and Wake Forest Baptists combine to offer is pretty awesome. It's an organization that will span North Carolina with elements in Georgia and also elements in South Carolina. Will The value organization and pop health organization will have some 750,000 lives in more than 90 counties. There's some five different ACOs that are going to be coming together to work together to bring better care to populations across these three states and 90 counties. The learning, the institutional learning that can happen now will be awesome. The focus that you can have across the three organizations will be powerful. We're really looking to how we can weave together elements of Atrium who have invested deeply in community health in Charlotte and outside of the city. Wake Forest Baptist, an academic center that has resources both for research and innovation. Chess, who has relationships with provider organizations within the state that stretch all the way from Western Piedmont into parts of Southern Virginia. Carolina Physician Alliance, that has historically been a physician organization that's focused on accountable care and value. We're only at the beginning of the potential that this relationship has. We stay very excited about learning from our partners in Wake and Atrium 
and Carolina Physician Alliance. And you're going to hear more about this going forward. This is just the beginning. When I was starting, I, I remember I've, I've got a little over a year and a half at Chess. The announcements were just coming out about a relationship between Atrium and Wake Forest Baptist Health. And now we're seeing it come to fruition. But I, I assure you, our work is only beginning. And there's going to be great work to come of this. Dr. James, Chess has had great success in its various medical management programs as well. In 2019, Chess won the NACOS Innovation Award for its medication assistance program that has pharmacists embedded in a multidisciplinary care clinic. And this service significantly lowered patient readmissions after discharge. It supports over 500 cases annually for patients unable to afford prescribed medications, and it generates over 200,000 in patient savings each year. Additionally, your care coordination program has been very successful, saving 1.7 million in the previous eight months by outreach and interventions that prevented ED visits and hospitalizations. Can you share with our listeners an overview of the various program successes and how you partner with practices and health systems to deliver a more patient-centered approach to care that improves population health outcomes? Oh, absolutely. So the four major pillars of our clinical work are the care management hub, the pharmacy services hub, our quality hub, and our risk adjustment team. All four of those are absolutely critical to work inside of value. Our push inside of our clinical work over the year, we focused on a few things. One of them will be and continue to be data analytics and predictive modeling. We can talk a little bit more about that. In particular, we have a partnership with the Center for Health Innovation at Wake Forest, and they've developed a predictive model for frailty, the e-frailty index. We piloted work in this last year inside of the hub, focusing on how to identify patients that may not physically appear to have the level of deconditioning and the risk of morbidity, hospitalization, and mortality that they have that can be seen inside of the data so that we can better suit their clinical plan to that patient. We're excited about using that to stratify our population, and we're going to continue that work throughout this year. Right now, part of that work is building out the data infrastructure so that we have good, high-quality, smart data to power the model. The rest is using both the care management hub and the pharmacy hub to identify patients to intervene upon. Another important part of the hub is our high utilizer conference. We meet every two to four weeks to for every value partner to have a review on patients that are especially high cost and then take a multidisciplinary approach to what can be done to intervene. What ceases to amaze me is the extent to which social issues come to the fore. Once you get past the multiple admissions and readmissions, or once you consider them and start to look past the clinical issues, social issues tend to reveal themselves. And nearly every patient that we find that are especially high cost, there are also some interventions to be made on their home, their community. You can have an elderly patient that themselves are receiving social security, but have a member of their household who recently lost their job. And now they have more of a financial strain than they did before. And they're making decisions on which meds they can get and which meds they cannot get. We are growing out a social work hub that really is past capacity for the amount of work that we can do. Part of value, I believe that this is a good part of the value equation, is that you're focused to accept the patient as a, their broader self. You're, you're not only interested and meeting your clinical goals in a way that is different than 
exist in fee-for-service medicine. Fee-for-service medicine, you can be pleased. If you've checked off your clinical boxes, you're going to receive your reimbursement based on the efforts that you made. And value, you can increase your savings by having a willingness to meet the patient where they are and to push a patient into improving their health literacy, finding resources to make sure that they can get to the clinic. We find resources to make sure that folks can get food if they need it. We find resources and we partner to find resources to make sure they have funds for their meds. So the community interventions and the social determinants of health-based interventions are not necessarily something that you can reap a full benefit for when you're under fee-for-service. I, I think the value equation really drives health partners to think more broadly about their patient populations. But finally, onto the hubs, our other major pushes for this year. We're pushing our pharmacy team to embed more pharmacists and clinics. We're working on another implementation of our embedded pharmacists. We've redeployed both teams, both our care managers and our pharmacy team, we've been thinking about how do we use the resources that we have. We have a group of PharmDs working closer to top of their license now that we've deployed an additional team of pharmacy technicians to work with them uh, to be given direction on where should they be offering med assistance, where should they offer adherence assistance, which medications on which patients would allow us to reach the next cut point within our quality measures. Part of our work is to make sure that the ROI that we offer our value partners continues to make sense for them. We are so aggressive in that regard. We've been at times able to adjust our cost to value partners based on us creating a more efficient service within our hubs. Well, Jesse, a big part of that ROI also is risk adjustment. And of course, there's the allocation of premium and how that all factors in. But then there's being able to document appropriately to, to the highest level of specificity to really understand the burden of disease and the, the population that you manage. It's so important in standing up medical management programs and, and really understanding and having predictive analytics around how you go about stratifying risk and ultimately planning interventions within a population. Can you provide a general overview of Chess's approach to risk adjustment and how has Chess been able to provide HCC coding and education and technology solutions to better assess, treat, and document the severity of patient illness? Risk adjustment and HCC coding, I'll have to plead guilty that this is not necessarily the sexiest part of value-based contracting, but it's, it's one of those things that are so important because how well you code on the hierarchical chronic conditions will determine how much of your shared savings you are allowed to reap. So having good documentation, having good analytics, having a process to teach and train clinicians on what's the way they should be documenting for the sake of RAF. It allows a provider organization to win more dollars so they can invest more deeply in value and invest more deeply in the services we've described. We split our, uh, our RAF work into education, data analytics, and intervention. At a high level, we try to do a series of talks from our subject matter expert on RAF to visit each value partner at least once a year on a high level this is RAF 101. For our more advanced value partners, we move from merely educating physicians to doing more data analysis on where are your opportunities, what codes were missed last year for frequently non-optimally or poorly documented diagnoses. We're making sure we pull examples out and then do sit down one-on-one -on -one training sessions, advisement sessions with physicians that have especially high populations of patients where there's an opportunity to improve RAF. We see 
significant increase in the revenue we're able to win back when we have partners that are able to engage it with us on RAF. When it comes to RAF, ideally, you need a combination between sort of your good relationship, ground team, human to human advisement, and good data analytics. And ideally, a solution that exists that's fairly seamless with your EMR to point for opportunities to code RAF better. We press both inside of our value partners. We're currently working on completing a build on our RAF solution inside of our pop health technology vendor. But it's, it's something you cannot neglect as a value organization, and you will do so at your own peril. RAF scores are often adjusted in relation to others around you. So as we improve, our community has improved and that presses on us to do even better when it comes to RAF, but good analytics and then good relationships. If you don't have the relationship, you can't get into the physician office and you, you can't even speak to the value equation around RAF. Dr. James, it's evident that you're someone that has an extensive level of experience with HIT and informatics as a physician executive. And, and during your time, with the ONC, you were deeply involved in the EHR Meaningful Use Program, and you served as a clinical advisor on multiple federal committees. You also received an honorary award for excellence and in innovation at the ONC, and you served as a co-chair for the Macro Technical Expert Panel. In the private sector, you've continued to lead in value-based care by leveraging the enablement that only technology can bring, as, as you've shared with us today. Can you speak to the importance of technology further as a disruptor to the traditional model of healthcare? Will APIs and predictive analytics set the stage for major innovation to create opportunities for disruptive creativity in the value ecosystem as we look forward? Oh, I think absolutely. When I hear the question, I, I think of my ONC days when we were just making the case to move data and often making the case to some of our federal partners that it's possible to survey information across multiple EMRs in multiple states uh, for the sake of public health. The pandemic has exposed some of our vulnerability in this space because we are getting the public health and clinical database public health infrastructure to answer some of the questions that seemed like science fiction only a few years ago. People would pose the question, how many, how many people had acute myocardial infarctions yesterday in the United States? And it was an unanswerable question. Now that we have, we've matured a standard around ADTs to say the least, but also for an ADT is a message from a hospital about why a patient is there and where they might be moving. But now there are also standards around clinical summary documents that can move with patients. Because the standards have matured, because APIs are moving, APIs are uh, little pieces of software. It's, it's the reason your bank app is able to work with different banks and you to send your Zelle. And when you're on Mint, you know what's happening in Wells Fargo. Now that we have infrastructure in place to move the data, we can answer questions that were near unimaginable and we can provide better care and we can have better information to help us fight the pandemic. This is not ideal yet. Still, when you ask the average physician, how do they know that their patient was in the hospital, you'll still hear about discharge summaries and faxes. So it's not enough for the standards to be in place. It's sort of like there's a railroad, but uh, there are railroad ties, but the cars don't fit to the ties. So we need the information to move. We need more adherence to standards. As the data get better, the models and their predictive power 
will get better and we'll be better able to find these micro subpopulations that need interventions in ways that we just couldn't before. And we'll be better able to track what's happening inside of the pandemic and find spikes or flares or the many epidemics that are happening now. So I, I think the promise continues to be there. Predictive modeling is being set on both claims and clinical data in ways that it couldn't before, both in being set to consumer data as well. So our models are getting smarter. How we choose patients is getting smarter. It allows our interventions to be um, even better tailored to our patient populations. That's part of our excitement around the EFI is to tailor our interventions to the reality of the patient based on good data that we have and based on a model that's been validated and proven to work. Dr. James, as we wrap up our conversation today, I want to think about how we can better care for the most vulnerable in our society. And we need to ensure health equity by reducing disparities in care among different populations as a result of institutional racism. At this moment in time, it seems like we have these two historical events clashing together at once. I mean, we have this catastrophic public health crisis and the resultant economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we have this plight of racial injustice in our society. And it seems to me that both of these events have really put a spotlight on health inequities within communities of color. I mean, it just seems like there's never been a, a period in American history where the health of blacks was equal to that of whites. And it seems that that disparity is somehow built into the healthcare system. And we see that with adverse health outcomes in the African-American community. I mean, the public health data on that's been irrefutable in, in looking at how routine medical practice continues to treat black and brown patients differently from white patients. And this really must be changed if we're truly to transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. So Dr. James, can you provide a perspective on how we can create a, a greater sense of health equity in our system? As a healthcare executive working in value and as a Black American physician, I think finding ways to improve and increase health equity is important. When I think about what health equity means, because the term equity, I, I feel like it's changed over time and can be loaded in some places and unloaded in others. I, I think it sometimes can have political connotations. But when I think of health equity, I think of something that's pretty general to good healthcare and something that we learn as a value of healthcare as practitioners, that we are responsible for knowing our patients and doing what's best for them in a way that suits them. I'll give you a, a good example of that if a physician or provider is practicing well, they should be able to be almost blind. There's a school of thought within training that you should be blind to your patient's financial reality. But at the same time, that blindness to the financial reality of your patient will get in the way of you being able to prescribe the best drug. If you, you can't treat all of your patients the same because some patients will have different needs and you have to be able to identify what their needs are so you can decide on a course that best suits that patient. When I think of health equity, I think of how can we make an effort within a patient that suits them well? And to do so, we have to be able to appreciate the diversity of patients that we have. And there's a reality of patients that includes their race and ethnicity, but also includes their health literacy. It also includes their education level. It also includes their income level. I think value-based care is another place where diversity, 
and inclusion and the appreciation of a patient and their wholeness, it creates an economic incentive for you to have that appreciation and then tailor your intervention to that individual patient. If you're thinking about your patient's native language, if you're thinking about your patient's built and healthcare environment, or if you're thinking about how far they are from the nearest bus stop, if you're thinking about whether there are interpretation services or good interpretation services at the clinic that they tend to go to, you can make better decisions on access. I think that's core to our organization doing well. And that's core to our social determinants work. It's a realization that a patient is just more than that clinical picture that you see. And that human being exists within a family and a community. And that family and community are diverse and will have challenges within them that you have to be able to recognize if you're going to make a difference on. I'd also lean into the importance of equity around model development and predictive analytics. I think there's an increased concern on how we deploy models and how we deploy interventions in a way that does not unfairly exclude populations that's based on how the data were collected or based on the people who were used to build the model. If you aren't including a diverse set of folks in your model building, just as if you aren't testing a diverse set of folks in your intervention selection, then you're at risk for bias inside of your model. And, and that's something we have to be careful of as a healthcare executive and a Black American. I keep that in mind. Our country has come an incredibly long way. And that's something of which I am very proud. Like I'm, I'm proud to think of my parents. I had a father who grew up in Chicago and my mother grew up in Atlanta. So my mother's parents are more deeply and approximately Southern. When she was young, she remembers going on car rides and they didn't know where they could sleep at night. You had to go to certain hotels who would accept you. This woman in her same lifetime got to see a black president of the United States in a single generation. This is such an incredible country to live in because there's so much opportunity and we are so willing to change and push ourselves forward. So I'm accepting of the challenge that comes with diversity and inclusion inside of value. But I think it's, it's key to what we do. And I have no, no doubt that we're Americans. We'll meet this challenge as we have everyone we face so far. Dr. Jesse James, thank you so much for joining us today in this race to value. You are truly out there leading the way for our country to create better value and better health equity for those in our country. And, you know, thank you for everything that you do. How can our listeners find out more about your work and Chess Health Solutions? You can visit our website or go to LinkedIn where you'll see Chess Health Solutions. I really want to thank you guys for your time. And the questions, thanks for paying attention to the work we're doing at Chess, the growth we have. We've grown only in the last year. We're, we were at 150,000 lives at the end of the last year. I think at this point, we're at 180,000 lives. So we continue to grow. We are especially excited about the work that's going to come from the Atrium Wake uh, Chess relationship. This access to improve population health across North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, we are deeply invested in our own culture. It's a culture that has had to change, like flexibility is in our blood. For both our care coordination and our pharmacy hub, we had to make a decision to go remote in about 24 hours last year. And I remember sitting down with the directors as we were talking about company policy and talking about what was happening 
with the pandemic and talking about the concerns of our workers and coming to the conclusion that it made sense to do this. It was a challenge for us because we are traditionally shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow type of place where folks sit down in meetings together and it tends to be a full room and people are engaged and talking to one another and looking at one another. So this, this was a big challenge and a change for us. What, there was some concern that, oh, if the folks are at home, how are we going to be sure that they're working? We've, we've got to check productivity. When we looked at productivity, we often found that productivity was even higher in our hubs outside of our physical space where we could have a supervisor checking on folks. We found that by giving our team the tools they needed and trusting them that our outcomes actually improved for our pharmacy team, where we redeployed with both pharmacy technicians and PharmDs last year, and where we went entirely remote. We had scores on our star quality that went up and scores on adherence that improved as well. So part of our lesson from 2020 was that you know, we have to stay willing to flex. We have to stay willing to change our teams when the opportunities arrive. And we have to stay willing to look at the data and be objective about it. It wasn't a place where we saw failure and we needed to change. But as those places occur, we keep paying attention to them. Excellent work there, Dr. James. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Eric. Dr. James, this was truly an inspirational conversation. You've given me a lot to personally reflect on, and, and, and I really appreciate it. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but the triad of leadership qualities that you mentioned early on, humility, innovation, and expertise, that's another version of HIE. <laughs> it's a I did not, yeah. but I'm going to run with that one. <laughs> yeah, you said that. And I, I wrote that down because, wow, that's that's the perfect combination of qualities to just be successful, what our healthcare leaders need to be thinking about. Thanks for that. Now, I've been fortunate to work with some good folks at good places. This is a really great team. 